नमस्ते गाइस आई एम डॉक्टर अनुश्रुति एंड आई एम बैक विद अ सुपर एनर्जेटिक एपिसोड टुडे ऑन बोर्ड आई हैव डॉक्टर मैट मिटकिफ हु इज अ फिजिकल थेरेपिस्ट बाय प्रोफेशन एंड इज सोशली एक्टिव टू मेक पीपल अवेयर अबाउट फिजिकल थेरेपी रीहैब इंजरी प्रिवेंशन एंड अ लॉट मोर लेट्स नॉट वेस्ट टाइम एंड स्पीक टू हिम डायरेक्टली हेलो डॉक्टर मैट हाउ आर यू आई एम डूइंग ग्रेट हाउ आर यू टुडे आई एम फाइन वेल स्टार्टिंग विद द वेरी फर्स्ट क्वेश्चन what do you think what are some of the basic qualities that make a professional physical therapist you know i work uh, there's many different areas of physical therapy and i work in the outpatient orthopedic sports medicine setting and so i i i really think there's a few things that are critically important in our area number one you need to know anatomy and physiology and kinesiology study of movement uh like the back of your hand it needs to be second nature to you you have to have that skill set in order to analyze why someone may be having pain um what they're not doing right and be able to adjust things in order to help get them better um but i think the other components that are critically important that people often neglect are uh just what it means to give good customer service and to treat people well um I've said it on uh my Instagram page and I've said it to all my staff that uh you need to be a person that's likable that people enjoy spending time with. Um often our patients come 3 times a week for a month or 2 months or 3 months. If they don't like you, they're not going to come back and that doesn't give you the opportunity to to help them. Uh you need to be accessible. Um my practice has been built by peeping people being able to get a hold of me being able to get in to see me and 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 receive excellent treatment uh, but if they can't get in to see you because you're too busy you're not accessible to them it doesn't give you the opportunity to help them so a skill set that is very knowledgeable in kinesiology anatomy physiology uh to be able to help your patients but also being someone they enjoy being with they listen and respect and someone they can get in to see that can help them is critically important okay well all my aspiring doctors make a note okay moving on my team has observed that you like to talk a lot about acl rehab so my sure. question to you is what are some basic things that one should keep in mind as a physical therapist or as a patient while having an acl rehab session yeah i think there's a lot of things and i think we start with the fact that uh acl injuries are um unfortunately very common in sports especially in the female athlete they're anywhere between 2 and 8 times more likely to happen with a non-contact mechanism in the female athlete and there's lots of factors that we can talk about later but at the end of the day it's something we see often um honestly if you're not well versed in seeing people in acl rehab then make sure they get with someone that is because um a bad acl rehab is going to result in a bad outcome for that patient uh, we know that one out of 3 uh acl rehabs are going to result in a second surgery either to that knee or another knee and honestly that's not very good anything medically that one out of 3 is going to happen again that's not great so we need to be better in the rehab setting in order to to minimize those risks there's still going to be a risk but there's certain things that minimize that risk one is um 
uh, making sure that you realize how that tissue heals and how long it takes. Um, return to sport and activity uh, used to be somewhere around five and a half to, to nine months. We found that every month someone waits between six months and nine months, the re-injury rate goes down uh, by 52%. So that's a lot. So time after surgery is critical. We need to be able to measure their strength. Um, often in physical therapy, we use manual muscle tests. I mean, at the end of the day, that really doesn't tell us a lot and it doesn't tell us how that quad may function or the hamstring may function. So we need to have an objective measure. We use a dynamometer in our clinic uh, to be able to measure quad strength. And we want that quad to be about the same as the other, at least 90% of the other. Uh, some sort of functional testing criteria. We have 20 different tests. Um, that leg needs to be, again, 90 to 95% of the opposite leg. Um, Neuromuscular control, which is the ability of that person to jump and land and squat and look the same on one leg and the other. So that symmetry between the legs. And then uh, fear of re-injury is actually the second greatest indicator of re-injury in ACL rehab. So um, often in ACL rehabs in the past, the doctor tells the patient, hey, I think you're ready. Um, the parents tell the, the patient, their child, I you're ready. We want to see you play sports again. Um, the kids sitting there going, I don't think I'm ready, but nobody asked me. Uh, coaches want you back, all that kind of thing. So we give a fear of re-injury scale, the um, ACL return to sport index. Um, so uh, we want to make sure that there isn't anything that really concerns that athlete that they can go back and play their sport. So they meet all those five criteria. The re-injury rate goes down by about 88%. Um, but unfortunately, very few uh, and about only half the patients that are cleared to go back to their sport uh, meet that criteria. So we need to be better to have criterion-based return to sport and ACL surgeries. We need to know what things need to happen early in the process and what things need to happen in late in the process in order to minimize the re-injury rate and obviously get that one to three, uh, uh, one to three incidents down to something far less frequent. Okay. Well, moving on, Dr. Matt, I would like to introduce you to one of the favorite segments of my show where we answer the questions of my followers, patients, and clients. So I have a bunch of questions ready for you. Is Dr. Matt ready to answer the questions? I hope so. I'm going to try. Okay. Well, the first question comes from Anju Gupta from Madras. She says, hello, Dr. Matt. How are you? Greetings from India. I had an ACL surgery two months back. When can I start cycling? I really miss it. Um, so a couple of different questions. Two months ago, I'm assuming she means cycling on the road. Um, hopefully, uh, she has been doing cycling in her rehab on a stationary bike, um, Peloton, something that um, doesn't minimize the risk of falling off. Um, if you look at her graft healing, uh, what we'd be concerned about with road biking is if she were to take a turn sharp, get stuck in her clips, or um, if she didn't have clips, uh, have to hop off the bike, could she hop off the bike and land um, safely? Uh, so normal, customary, just ride around the neighborhood biking. Um, ACL graft has really good bone to tissue healing at around four months after the surgery. Um, basic rides at four months after the surgery and then that jumping off the bike should be a criteria that's similar to you know jumping and doing plyometrics in her clinic so in her clinic setting she should be doing jumping and landing activities um 
between four and five months and that'll prepare her for cycling and doing harder rides where she can jump and land off the bike so um four months to start basic rides around the neighborhood and street uh after that once she's done a jump landing program um and comfortable um hopping off her bike uh after four months would be when we would start um more difficult more technical rides um either in clips or out of clips um but should happen soon but hopefully she's doing like i said should be doing stationary bike hard peloton rides she can crank it the only worry after that eight week point is just falling off a bike and we want to minimize that and make sure if she does fall off her bike she's able to withstand it on her knee okay i hope miss anju your question is answered moving on we have krishna b sharma from chandigarh okay he says I have frozen shoulder because of which I'm not able to lift weights anymore. Normally, it usually stays fine. But as soon as I try to lift, it starts paining. Why is it so? And is it normal? Uh, so many questions there. And, and let's assume he does have frozen shoulder, which technically is called adhesive capsulitis. Uh, that's going to minimize his range of motion. Um, and so when he goes to those extremes, especially when he weight trains, uh, it's going to put more stress on his capsule. What's happened in a frozen shoulder is that capsule, uh, which keeps the ball of the shoulder kind of in place and keeps fluid within it, has tightened up. Um, and in a normal joint, there's got to be what we call accessory motion. So as we lift overhead, the muscles stretch, but also the bones roll against each other, roll and glide against each other in the joint. So that frozen shoulder, that adhesive capsulitis limits that. So when he gets to those extremes, like he's doing a bench press and his arms are going back or overhead, um, he starts to really stretch that capsule. It's going to hurt. Now, this is one of those things I would tell him that you really need to stretch the heck out of it in every which position, um, every single day, even on the days that you weight train. And that will help you get your motion back until you get all the motion back. Uh, it's going to hurt. And let's again, assume he doesn't have a rotator cuff tear or something else giving him pain, labral tear. But if you're not stretching the crud out of it to the point like that is really super uncomfortable, you're not going to get your motion back. Um, and technically, we treat that with extraordinarily aggressive stretching and capsular mobilization in clinic or the doctor has to come in. Uh, put you under anesthesia, knock you out, stretch it in every which direction, and sometimes go in and scope out the scar tissue. So I'd encourage him to stretch it every which way, hang on a bar, crank it. You, you really can't hurt yourself. Um, but if you don't get the motion back, weight training is going to continue to be uncomfortable. Moving on, we have someone who wants to be anonymous. Okay, he says, I'm a working physio in India. I, I treat patients very well, but somehow, sometimes I forget some muscle, its name or its origin, insertion, and certain conditions and its scientific term. What can I do now? What is the right way to start anatomy and these things? Am I too late to do this? I think none of us are too late to continue to work on anatomy. Um, I take students and fellows very often and, and emphasize anatomy skills. Um, I've taken refresher anatomy courses, um, actually, with my uh, my uh, doctoral program anatomy teacher uh, multiple times, both online and uh, 
and in person. So, um, you know, if he has access to a local school that he could get back in the cadaver lab, great. There's a lot of um, texts and apps out there that um, can just help him to refresh with anatomy. I think the starting point really is what do you see the most of? Uh, is it shoulders? Is it knees? Is it spine? And, and just start going back through your anatomy book and looking at pictures. Go to Google Google Images and look at the pictures there. Get an idea where things start and end. You don't need to know every bony landmark and you don't need to know every term, uh, but you kind of need to know where muscles start and finish uh, to help diagnose things. You need to, if you know where they start and finish, then that kind of dictates how muscles can move, um, how bones can move. So. Um, start with what you treat the most frequently. Um, look at that online or look at that in text, whatever is most comfortable for you. Uh, but you're never too late. And honestly, none of us know it all. I mean, some people have borderline phot photographic memories for stuff like that. Fortunately, mine's pretty good. But, um, you know, a lot of people aren't very good with that, too. And and the fact that he wants to learn and, and know more about it is awesome. So um, just start with the basics. Learn one or two things a week, and that's going to make you a better uh, physio. Absolutely. Well, we have another question from Prisha Maheshwari from Jaipur. Hi, Dr. Anushuti. How are you? I'm good. Hello, Dr. Matt. How are you? Greetings from India. My uncle had PHR last month. He's able to walk now, but certainly not able to sit for longer period of time. Why is it happening? You know what, to be honest, there there could be a lot of things going in, involved depending on what he had before the surgery, whether he had a, a low back component uh, before he had his hip replaced. Um, but you know what, any kind of surgery doesn't like to be still after the surgery. Um, it doesn't like to do too much exercise, too much walking. Uh, but uh, when you have a joint replaced, it likes to move and that circulates the joint fluid He's obviously one of those people, so he doesn't like to sit for long periods of time. So get him up and move. Um, you want to assess his motion uh, and make sure that um, he's got good motion. The other thing, depending if, especially if he had a posterior approach and some of the scars are around where he sits on his glute, his butt, his sits bone, uh, maybe he needs some uh, scar tissue mobilization around uh, those uh, surgical sites. Uh, because his discomfort isn't so much the replacement, it's where they went through the skin and the fat and the soft tissue to do the replacement if he had a posterior approach. So just some ideas, get him moving, assess the scars, are they tender? If they are, massage them, try to break up um, the superficial scar tissue. Um, but movement for him is key and staying in one position for long periods of time is, is not going to be fun for him until his hip recovers all the way. Absolutely. Well, bingo, you have answered all the questions. And here I would like to make a note to my audience, everyone who's listening and watching this video on different platforms from different parts of the world. If you want to ask questions directly to the speakers of other episodes, you can DM the questions on me on my social media handles. Moving on, Dr. Matt, my questions are still not over. Female athlete, female workout, we have come across a lot of things about it. Some people think that lifting weights for a female, doing heavy, rigorous exercise for a female is bad and it affects their menstrual health and their overall health, BMI, make them masculine. So what is your take? Please clear the air about this. 
You know, I don't think it's my take. I think it's kind of what research says. And um, research shows that um, lifting weights, even heavier weights for females, um, is, uh, is a health benefit and doesn't detract from any part of their life, including menstrual cycle. So I just did a podcast with a pelvic uh, health specialist, and she would tell you the same thing. A lot of even after pregnancy, getting uh, women back into the gym, lifting weights um, is beneficial to their cycle, helping to regulate it with um, hormones, uh, lean tissue mass, and women gaining lean tissue mass is really, it, it is lifting weights, but it's also uh, your nutrition. So if your nutrition is a surplus of calories, yes, you're going to put on a little bit of muscle, but women are limited in what they can put on uh, because because of their hormonal cycle. They don't have the same amount of testosterone that men have. Um, so in the past, that has been a thought. Uh, lifting weights, especially heavy, is bad for women. We find that it's actually the opposite. Um, beyond the psychological benefit of feeling strong, feeling accomplished, seeing progress within the gym, um, I see no downside uh, to it through the research that would dissuade or, or have me dissuade a woman to start um, lifting weights, even if she wants to lift, lift heavy. Absolutely. Well, last but not the least, Dr. Matt, we have a lot of aspiring doctors in my audience. You, you know, you know, I know, we all know that this is the hardest time of their life. They feel that this is a never-ending process and how much pressurizing this time, this situation is for them. And they'll be doctors, they'll be taking up place in the next few years. So what will be your piece of advice, motivation or wisdom or words for them? I would just say this, when, you, uh, when you're getting towards the end of your schooling and, and even in your first couple of years of practice, uh, you have this mindset that, gosh, I, I really don't know what I'm doing. I, I feel unprepared. Um, I feel definitely unexperienced uh, for the task. And I'm going to move into a facility, whether it's a hospital or a clinic, with all these people that have been doing it for years. And I, and I think it's important to realize we all felt that way. Um, there's still some days, 20 years into my practice, I'm like, I don't know what the heck I'm doing. And I got to figure it out. And and so for me, it was really important to have good people around me. And still it is. Like I have a staff that I can go to and ask questions when I don't know or I'm unsure or they need to double check. Uh, and so having those mentors and people around you that you can rely on that don't make you feel bad if you don't know everything um, and are going to help build you up, lift you up and make you better, I think is so critically important, not only to your development as a physio, but your your passion and love for the job. If you see someone that loves what they do and they're willing to help you along the way, it only makes you more passionate in how you treat your patients. Um, you're going to have cases that you've That'll be the first time you ever see it, your first year practicing, but that'll happen your second. It'll happen a little less your third, but it'll continue to happen. And and again, just having those resources, those people around you, that environment that gets you excited about coming to work, knowing, hey, if there's something that I can't solve, I've got someone that can help me solve that problem. Um, that's a total win, not only for you, but for our profession. So I encourage the experienced PTs, the, the clinical uh, people that are there to wrap your arms around people coming out of school and help make our profession better. For those coming out of school, all that anxiety you're feeling that 
I don't know if I can do this. I'm not going to be good enough. Hey, we all felt that and we still kind of feel it from time to time. So totally normal. The fact you feel that means you care and you have a passion for what you want to do and you want to be really good. And that's an awesome starting point for any of us to really want to be good uh, for your patients, for your clinic, for your business, and for the healthcare system. So um, kudos to all of you, but uh, you're going to get better every day. Put good people around you. And um, I'm excited to see what this next generation brings to us. That's so cool. Even I'm looking forward to it. Well, with this, we have come to an end of the episode. Thank you so much, Dr. Matt, for taking our time from your schedule and joining in. I do hope you enjoyed speaking to me and my audience. And I really wish that we collaborate more in the future to bring out some useful and helpful episodes like this one. Awesome. I'd, I'd love to be back. Thank you so much for having me to your audience. Uh, uh, keep doing what you're doing and supporting our profession. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Well, with this, this is your reminder to straighten your back, have a glass of water and move. We'll meet in the next episode. Till then, goodbye. Take care.